0: Good morning, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 5 and again in chapter 6, we are introduced to a prophet named Haggai. And the past four Sundays we looked at Haggai's prophecy and inserted his message In the first six chapters of the book of Ezra, and we are are finished with Haggai, and so now we return to the book of Ezra and continue in the narrative as it unfolds in chapter 7, verse 1. I want you to begin by noticing the first three words. Again, that's Ezra, chapter 7, verse 1. Now, after this. What is Ezra referring to? He's referring to the first six chapters. Now, the first six chapters of this book are a unit. The unit begins with a declaration. Chapter 1, the very first verse, God stirred the king's heart. The unit ends with a declaration. Chapter 6, the very last verse, God Turned the king's heart. So it's a unit. Six chapters, beginning with a pointed declaration, clear message. God stirred the king's heart. Ending ending with a very clear, pointed message. God turned the king's heart. And so in between that starting point and end point, that is chapter 1, verse 1, and the last verse of chapter 6, Uh, Ezra is impressing upon us a very very simple uh, yet profound message. The restoration of the remnant and the reconstruction of the temple are God's handiwork. That's the message of the first six chapters of Ezra. And now Ezra is shifting gears. Uh, That unit has ended. And now he begins a new unit here in chapter 7. Now look at the next six words, seven words. Again, in Ezra 7, verse 1. In the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Well, we've heard of Cyrus, king of Persia. We've heard of Darius, king of Persia. Now here we meet a man named Artaxerxes, significant because it means 60 years have passed. So between the last verse of chapter 6 The first verse of chapter 7, we have an interval of 60 years. Chapter 6, when it ends, the year is 518 B.C. Chapter 7, when it begins, the year is 458 B.C. We know very little about the intervening period. We know a great deal when you go to archaeology and you go to your average museum. Uh, you'll find a great, deal, a great number of artifacts and information and paraphernalia from this, from this period of time pertaining to the Persian Empire. But in terms of the biblical witness, the biblical testimony, we know very little about this period. We do catch a glimpse of this intervening period, this 60 years, in the book of Esther. Why? Because you see, Darius, remember Darius... As a son, he calls his son Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S, also known as Ahasuerus. You read the book of Esther. Esther married that man. Xerxes, here in our text is the son of Xerxes. And so 60 years have passed. Now, I want you to notice the very next word. Now, after this, in the reign of Xerxes, king of Persia, Ezra. Finally, seven chapters in, and at last we're introduced to the central character, Ezra. Uh, why? Because to this point, Ezra wasn't alive. Uh, the first six chapters, which Ezra penned, he writes those chapters from the historical perspective. He wasn't there, he wasn't alive. Kind of like Moses, Moses writing the book of of Genesis. Moses wasn't alive during the book of Genesis. He writes from a historical perspective. And so Ezra writes, pens, from a historical perspective the first six chapters. But when we come to this period now, 458 B.C., 60 years have passed. We're now in the reign of a different king, King Artaxerxes. Now Ezra writes from the present perspective. And from here to the end of the book, he uses the first person. I, me, my. Did you get all that? Now follow along again as I begin reading at the outset of verse 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Saraiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitob, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzzi, son of Buki, son of Abushua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. And to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so in these verses, we learn that just as in the days of Cyrus, when a remnant returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, now in the days of Artaxerxes, another remnant returns from exile, captivity. Another remnant returns from Babylon to Jerusalem under the direction of Ezra. Now from verse 11 of chapter 7 all the way through to the end of chapter 8, all Ezra does is he goes back and he fills in some of the details. So the first 10 verses are introductory. In the first 10 verses, he introduces himself, gives his qualifications. In the first 10 verses, he says, look, yes, a remnant, another remnant has returned under my direction. And then from verse 11 right to the end, he gives us some details about that journey, about that move, all the way through to verse 36 of chapter 8. And then look at the first statement in the first verse of chapter 9, after These things had been done. That is the beginning of a third unit. And there you have the book of Ezra, very simple structure. Chapters 1 through 6, unit number 1. Chapters 7 through 8, unit number 2. Chapters 9 and 10, unit number 3. And so what we're looking at this morning is this second unit, chapters 7 and 8, which are summarized, In the ten verses which I read for us. And in these ten verses we discover three things which are developed in the rest of the unit. And so these verses accomplish three things. This unit as a whole accomplishes three things. Let me give them to you right at the outset so you can see where we're going this morning. The first is this. The unit. Again, that's chapters 7 and 8. It introduces a man. We already know who this man is. Ezra. Secondly, this unit records or describes a move. We already know what this move is. It's this remnant from Babylon to Jerusalem. And thirdly, most importantly, this unit communicates a message. So that's what we're looking for. It introduces a man, it records or describes a move, and it communicates a message. So begin with me. The very first point, this unit introduces a man. The man is Ezra. I want you to notice three things about him quickly. The first is his position. Look at verse 5. The son of, we have a little genealogy here. The son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. So in terms of his position, Aaron is what? He is a? He's a priest. Notice also concerning his position, it comes out in the very next verse, verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe. Okay, so we know something about this man. Uh, In terms of his position, uh, in terms of religion in particular, uh, firstly, a priest. He can can trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron. And not merely a priest, but a, a scribe. So that's his position. Now, notice, secondly, his qualification. Undoubtedly, he had several qualifications, but one is stressed in the sixth verse. He's no mere scribe. He is a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses is the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the law of Moses. Ezra undoubtedly has the Pentateuch memorized. He knows the law of Moses. But not only does he know the law of Moses, he knows how to use the law of Moses. He is a scribe skilled in the law. The third thing I want you to notice about this man, Ezra, is his devotion. So we know his position. He's a priest and a scribe. We know his qualification. He's skilled. And we also learn something of his devotion in the tenth verse. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now let's camp out here for a little bit because there is a great deal packed into that verse. Firstly, notice the object of Ezra's devotion the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord. Why is that significant? It's, it's significant when we, when we just stop and we think of Ezra. Uh, undoubtedly, we're reading between the lines, but I think we're safe in doing so. Undoubtedly, this is a man of great intellect, right? Uh, this is a man of great learning. And yet this is a man who has devoted himself to what? The law of Moses. Now think of it. A man of great intellect living where? In the capital of of the Persian Empire, Babylon, the seat of learning in that day and age. Scientific pursuit, astronomy, astrology, magic. It is the center of learning. And yet of great significance is this simple little truth here, this simple little declaration concerning Ezra. He had devoted his heart to what? The law of Moses. The man is swimming against the tide. That that is an invaluable lesson, friend. That that, that uh, let me try to let me try to break it down and really apply it here, especially for our, for our young people in high school, those going off to college. There is, there is, believe you me, there is nothing wrong with the pursuit of knowledge. Whether it be in the field of the humanities or, or the field of, uh, of natural science, the sciences, or the field of, of mathematics, I have nothing wrong with the pursuit of that knowledge. But understand this, Ezra teaches us this great truth, the pursuit of knowledge in those fields must always be guided by and subservient to our pursuit of and knowledge of the Word of God. The Word of God is the guiding light when it comes to studying history. The Word of God is the dividing light when it comes to studying any of the natural sciences. The, the, the word of God is the guiding light when it comes to the study of psychology or sociology or any English literature, any other discipline. You see, Paul warns us in his epistle to the Colossians, he warns us, he says, Let no one take you captive with what? Philosophy or empty deceit, which is according to what? Human tradition, don't misunderstand me. There is nothing wrong with philosophy per se. As a matter of fact, if you're not interested in philosophy, you've got big problems. Because philosophy, philo, is simply to love. Sophia is what? Wisdom. Philosophy is simply the love of wisdom. And I pray we all love wisdom. I pray we're all pursuing wisdom. The problem is this, philosophy as a discipline struggles with three questions. You go all the way back to Socrates, right down to the present, you look at any philosopher, any system of thought that has ever existed or that exists today, it is only grappling with three questions. Did you realize that? Philosophy is only concerned with three questions. Question number one is this, what is real? Question number two is this, what is true? And question number three is this, what is good? That is all philosophy is concerned with. That is all the pursuit of wisdom is concerned with. What are the answers to those three questions? What is real? Or or what is elusive and imaginary? What is true as opposed to what is false and error? What is good? What is beautiful as opposed to that which is evil and ugly? For the believer, Christian, be convinced of this. I beg you, be convinced of this. Those three questions, what is real, what is true, what is good? The answer to those three questions is God, as revealed in Scripture. And all study must be subservient to that answer. What is real? God Almighty is real, and his creation is real. What is true, what God says is true. There is such a thing as moral absolutes. God has spoken. What is good, what is beautiful? Whatever God deems to be good is good. Whatever God has made is beautiful. Whatever transgresses God's God's creation, whatever corrupts God's creation, whatever twists and bends and alters God's creation is by definition ugly and not good. God is the answer to those three questions. Philosophy becomes empty deceit when the answer to those three questions, all three or any of them, the answer becomes man. That's our society, folks. that's, that's, That's the problem with our political system right now. That's the problem with the economic system. That's the problem with every societal, cultural ill we are struggling with right now. As far as our society, although at times we still think we live in a Christian society, we do not. The answers to those three questions, insofar as our society is concerned, is not God. And because it is not God, but rather it is man, the answers in our society is being lifted and ripped from its moorings and set adrift, susceptible to every wind and blowing in whatever direction. You see, Ezra, he teaches us this. He had devoted his heart to the law of the Lord. Now, you young people, devote yourself to the law of the Lord. Devote yourself to Scripture and go off and study history, but never lose sight of the answer to those three questions. Go off and study biology. That's fine. Go off and study mathematics, more power to you. Go off and study Shakespeare, English literature, whatever it is, the fine arts. Philosophy itself as a discipline. But do not lose sight of the answer to those three questions. And understand that every branch of learning must be subservient to the answer to those three questions. What is good, what is true, what is real? God Every branch of learning must be subservient because here's the problem. When the answer becomes man and God is lost sight of, those disciplines in and of themselves become riddled with problems and turn into something ugly. Our culture confirms it. Our culture testifies to it. Young people, you young guys, you young gals, be like Ezra. Get, your, get your, everything in order. Heart first. To the law of the Lord, the word of God. And understand that God alone, as he reveals himself in scripture, is the answer to what is real, what is true, and what is good. But notice secondly something about Ezra's devotion. Not only is the object of his devotion the law. Notice secondly the extent of his devotion. His heart. That's interesting. Verse 10 of Ezra 7. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. When it comes to the Bible, when it comes to Scripture, God's Word, it isn't enough to set your mind to studying it. We must actually set our hearts, and in particular, the affections of the heart. Uh, this is a great struggle. I was, I was pleased to see it. Brian, Brian sent me an email this past week uh, letting me know that uh, John Flavel's little book, Keeping the Heart, uh, a new edition was released decades ago. They're reissuing it, and he's planning on ordering some of them and doing a study here on Friday mornings. Excited, excited by that because it's a wonderful little book, John Flavel's little book, Keeping the Heart. And in that book, John Flavel states the following, and he, he's got it right. He says, The greatest difficulty in conversion... So when it comes to an unbeliever, the greatest difficulty in conversion is to win that person's heart to God. That's true, isn't it? We know it to be true from our own experience. We know it's true when it comes to witnessing to unbelieving friends and family members. The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. The greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God, to keep the heart with God. Um... Our hearts are like a musical instrument. You know, April, April gets up here and plays the, the violin at times. And um, so April is a musician. Uh, she knows how to tune a violin, and she knows how to play a violin. And as long as she cares for that violin, and that violin is in her hands, it makes a beautiful sound, doesn't it? Now, imagine she won't do this, but she leaves that violin in the back here behind the baptismal tank and for a couple of years, And her violin gets kicked around, knocked around, bounced around, touched by who knows whom. And then a couple of years from now, I decide to grab it and grab that other thing. I don't even know what it's called. I'm showing my musical ignorance here. The stick with the hair on it. And I start uh, wailing away on that violin. What kind of sound is it going to make? It's going to be atrocious. You see, friend, our, our hearts are like a musical instrument. Our hearts are like a violin. Our hearts must be kept in tune. And our hearts are only kept in tune through our our, our struggling to maintain a close and constant communion with God through His Word. You see, our hearts must stay in the hands of a great musician. And our hearts, through cultivating close and constant communion with God by His Word, our hearts are kept in order whereby they make a beautiful sound. But what happens? What happens when our lives begin to, we begin to strike all the wrong notes? What happens when the, when the music, well, we're not even sure it's end of, it can be called music. It's just, it's just noise. I can guarantee you what has happened is because the violin is no longer in the hands of the great musician. It is because we are not cultivating close and constant communion with God through his word. It is through our own negligence that our heart falls out of tune. And then our life becomes what? Just this string of disconnected noises. And what what causes pain to the ears and pain to the eyes to behold. Here we have a wonderful example from this man, Ezra. Yes, he's a priest. He's a scribe. Yes, he's devoted himself to the word of God. He has devoted his heart. He has devoted the affections of his heart. His desire is to cultivate. I've said it a couple times. Let me say it again. His desire is to cultivate close and constant communion with God through his word. Notice thirdly. Not merely the object of his devotion, the law, the word. Not merely the extent of his devotion, his heart. But look at the expression of his devotion there. We're still in verse 10 of chapter 7. Ezra had set his heart to do what? Three things. To study the law of the Lord. And to do it. And to, three things, teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The first thing he devoted his heart to do was to study the Word of God. And R.C. Sproul writes the following. Um, if you have an issue with it, just remind yourself it's his words, although I do agree with them. Study suggests labor, serious and diligent work. We fail in our duty to study God's Word, not because it is difficult to understand, not because it is dull and boring, but because it is work. It is work. And we have a natural antipathy toward work. Ezra devoted his heart to study. Study, friend, believer is by definition hard work. Uh, I remember meeting uh, friends of ours in Kilkenny, Ireland, going back years, decade or so, maybe more. And... uh, his friend, his 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 grandfather was a little bit of a boyhood hero for me. His name is T. Ernest Wilson, and he had been a missionary in Angola, wrote a book, Angola Beloved, a great little book about his ministry among the Mbundu-speaking people in, in Angola. And uh, so I raised with, with David, uh, you know, his grandfather's book and his grandfather's experience as a, as a missionary over in West Africa and uh, knowledge of the word, his knowledge of the word. And David shared with me a little, a little detail concerning his grandfather. He said, you know, Before he went out to Africa, he was in his early 20s when he went off to Angola. Uh, As a teenager, he worked on the docks in New York. And as a 17, 18-year-old, he used to have to be at the docks at, you know, 7, 8 in the morning, put in a long day. And, you know, he would get up at 4.30 every morning just to study the Bible. Every morning, every day of the week. As a teenager, before he went off to work on the docks, 4.30, he would get up and study the Word. I better add something here. I, uh, I shared that uh, little tidbit of information with the church years ago, and the next morning the phone rang at 6 in the morning. And uh, I had some choice words for uh, my brother on the other end of the phone, and he rather sheepishly, honestly replied, Look, I, I just assume you'd be up at 4.30. No <laughs> Don't assume that. That's not the point. If that's what you're getting from this, you've missed it I- entirely. We are all different. We are all wired different. The point is this, friends. To master this book, it will require something of you. Sister, brother, I'm telling you right now, there is no mastering this book apart from sacrifice. It will cost us something. Discipline involves Cost, discipline involves sacrifice. I don't know what it might be for you. I have a pretty good idea of what it has been for me looking back and what it still is. That as we devote our hearts to studying God's word, as we seek to cultivate daily, close, and constant communion with him, so that our hearts stay in tune, so that we're like the sweet sound of a a violin in, in, in the hands of a master musician, it's going to cost us something. We're going to have to give up something. We will have to surrender something because it is hard work. Study is hard work. But notice, secondly, Ezra, he's devoted himself, yes, not only to studying the law of the Lord. But what is there, secondly, there in the 10th verse, verse? To actually, here's a novel idea, do it. To practice it. That is, to obey it. And so Ezra studies, I think we can summarize it as follows. Ezra studies to obey. Ezra studies not merely as an intellectual pursuit. Ezra studies not just because he's trying to figure out some sort of eschatological puzzle and put it all together. Ezra studies not be- just because he's the curious sort of kind, of kind of person. Ezra studies not just because he's contentious and likes debating and arguing with other people. Ezra studies why? Because he wants to know God's will. Why? Because he wants to obey God an old puritan warned as follows if learning that is a study of God's word ever forgets that it must sit at the feet of Jesus it will be a curse instead of a blessing it will create darkness instead of communicating light but there's a third thing here isn't there Ezra has set his heart yes firstly to study the law of the lord secondly to do it practice it obey it whatever expression you want to use and thirdly, to teach, impart his statutes, God's statutes and rules in Israel. As a matter of fact, that's why he wants to go back to Jerusalem. matter of fact, I mean, Artaxerxes doesn't really realize this, but that's why Artaxerxes is sending Ezra back to Jerusalem. All is not well in Jerusalem. All is not well among those exiles who had returned during the reign of Cyrus. There are problems. There are some pretty big problems. There are some pretty serious problems. And so this man who is conser- consumed with the glory of God, This man who is consumed with the house of God is consumed with the word of God and his desire is to make it known among God's people. And so this text, these verses, this unit, it introduces a man. Now notice secondly, not only does it introduce a man, it describes a move. And we have it summed up there in verse 8, still in Ezra 7. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, so it's a four-month journey, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. And then from verse 11 all the way through to the end of chapter 8, he goes back and he fills in the details. And so, for example, he tells us something about a decree beginning in verse 11 through to verse 26 of chapter 7. He he explains what got this whole thing going, this move right there at the beginning. It was this decree that Artaxerxes had issued. Just as Cyrus, all those years earlier, had issued a decree permitting the Jews to return, now Artaxerxes is doing the same thing. Not only is he permitting them to return, but he's actually going to fund the, the, the journey and what needs to be done there back in Jerusalem. Not only that, but he's giving Ezra authority to appoint magistrates and rulers and judges back in Jerusalem. Not only that, but he's giving Ezra authority through the scribes to make sure the people of God are following the law of God. Wow. Now, why would some pagan king who doesn't know his left hand from his right when it comes to spiritual things have any concern with what's going on back in Jerusalem and give Ezra such a letter? Why would he do that? All is not well in the kingdom of Persia. It's 458 more or less BC. And the Greek city states are beginning to flex their muscles Athens, Sparta, all those cities. They're not yet united. That awaits Philip of Macedonia. They're not yet a great military threat. That's going to await Alexander the Great. But these Greek city-states are already flexing their muscles and beginning to cause problems in Egypt. And so the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, is politically motivated in order to maintain his hold, maintain his grip. He's thinking humanly. He's thinking in terms of his kingship, his dominion, his kingdom, that he'll do something for the Jews in hopes of what? Buying their what? Their loyalty. That's what's going on from a human vantage point. But notice, secondly, there's a second detail, a response. Verse 27 and 28 of chapter 7. Here Ezra says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put, this is important, such a thing as this into the heart of the king. So Artaxerxes has his motives. Artaxerxes is selfishly driven. There is nothing laudable about what Artaxerxes is doing. It is the doctrine of concurrence. It is God demonstrating yet again that the king's heart are like waters in the palm of his hand. He turns them wherever he pleases. And so although Artaxerxes has his reasons, his motivation, and though he's driven simply by selfish ambition, trying to maintain control over the Persian Empire, it is God sovereignly using, directing Artaxerxes to accomplish his own sovereign, plans and purposes for his house in Jerusalem. Notice a third detail. brings us into chapter 8, a genealogy. I'll spare you the details. But important always to bear in mind that God has his eye on individuals, isn't it? God's people aren't just some collective lump, no discernment between them. No, God knows his own. And here we have this wonderful list of names of these people who are making the journey with Ezra from Babylon to Jerusalem. Notice a fourth detail, verse 15 of chapter 8, there's a call. Because as these exiles, they gather at this river called Ahava, Ezra notices there's a problem. No Levites have volunteered. No Levites have shown up. No Levites are prepared to make the journey back to Jerusalem, but the Levites are pivotal to his ministry. The Levites are pivotal to Ezra's mission. Why? He's going back to set things right. He's going back to appoint magistrates and civil rulers and authorities and all of these things. He's going back to teach the law. The Levites are the teachers of the law. So he puts out a call and almost forces some Levites to join this group sojourning from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And then notice fifthly a wonderful prayer beginning in verse 21 of chapter 8. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. And so there is this national fast, expressing humiliation, exciting supplication as they ready themselves for the return. And then a sixth detail, from verse 24 through to the end of chapter 8, a charge. Now These people are carrying a lot of gold. They're carrying a lot of silver. In today's figures, they've got millions of dollars on them. And so Ezra entrusts these precious articles, these valuable artifacts, this gold and silver to, to appointed men, trustworthy men to hold them accountable for these possessions as they make that four-month journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. Those are all the details. The details that he fills in as to this journey. Now, I want us to not get lost in the details. Get above the details. See this journey as it unfolds before us historically and ask yourself a very important question. It's this. Why are these people doing this? Maybe you're already asking that. Why are they doing that? I ask that question because it's important for us to keep in mind the dates. 458 BC. The deportation from Jerusalem to Babylon occurred in 586 BC. By reckoning, don't double check my math, that's 128 years. So these people, it was their ancestors who had come to Babylon 128 years earlier. Um, these people were born in Babylon. Babylon is home. These people have built houses in Babylon. These people own property. These people are successful. These people are comfortable. I mean, think about it. 128 years ago from now, here we are, the year 2012. You go back 128, it was it 1884? So in 1884, your ancestors sailed the ocean blue, not that far back, from Poland or from Italy from Spain, from England, wherever they came, settled here in the United States of America, 128 years ago. What attachment do you still have to where they came from? None whatsoever. Imagine all of a sudden you woke up this morning and decided, hey, it's time to go home. (laughs) That would be absolutely what? Absurd. That's what these people are doing. 128 years have passed. They live in Babylon. Babylon is home. They've put down roots in Babylon. They are successful. They are comfortable. Why are they going back to Jerusalem? Why are they prepared to make that four-month arduous journey, uh, risking all, a, a, a journey fraught with danger? Why are they prepared to move to a place they've never been to and they actually know very little about? Why are they prepared to go to this backwater town in the Persian Empire, some city which still lays in ruin by and large? Why are they prepared to do that? Because it is still their identity. They still identify themselves with Jerusalem. They still identify themselves with the house of God. They still identify themselves with the temple. And for them... Babylon will never be home. There is is a crucial lesson there, brothers and sisters, a crucial lesson. As Ezra shows us something of devotion to God's word, here he, along with all these people, these Jews, show us something of devotion to God's house. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is the supreme body of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who has templed, tabernacled among us, and now the mystical body of the Lord Jesus Christ, his bride, his church. And let me suggest to you, actually, let me use a stronger word, let me affirm to you that just as Ezra is an example to us in terms of what it means to be devoted to the word of God. Here, Ezra and these Jews are an example to us, a shining light, a beacon of light, of what it means to be devoted to God's house. Let me read a few comments that I've penned here in my notes. Brothers and sisters, the church should be of supreme importance to us because it is of supreme importance to Christ. Think about it just for a moment. Christ established the church. Christ bought the church with his blood. Christ united himself, knit himself, wed himself to his church by the Holy Spirit. The church, the body of Christ, is God's instrument for glorifying himself in the world. I hear what one author says. The church is not a divine afterthought. The church is not an accident of history. The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. That being so, the church merits a little devotion, doesn't it? I praise God this was driven into me by my parents growing up. The church merits our devotion. Because the church stands at the center of the eternal plan and purpose of God. So personally, what does that mean when I couldn't care less what happens to the church? You can answer that as well as I can. What, is it, what does it mean when I view the church as an option? What is it when I view the what, what does it mean when I view the church as from the angle, the vantage point of pragmatism, what's in, it, what, what's in it for me? How does this help me? What does it mean when I can't be bothered to worship with the church? What does it mean when I don't grieve over the church's sin? What does it mean when I don't pursue Christ's glory in the church? Do you see where I'm going here with this? It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? We have these people. They are comfortable in Babylon. They aren't forced to leave. They have their lives. Well, whatever happens back there in Jerusalem happens. No, they're driven. Their identity is there. Their identity is with the people of God. Their identity is with the house of God. Their identity is with the city of God. Believer, your identity is the church. It is the church. John Huss, who died for his beliefs back in the 15th century, declared the following. Oh, to take this to heart. To love Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of the church, is to love his church, his bride. You cannot divorce the two. To love the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of the church, is to love the church, his bride. So Ezra gives us that powerful example of devotion to God's word. And here we have an equally powerful example of devotion to God's house. And that brings us to the third point. This unit communicates a message. You're already getting it in germinal form. This unit communicates a message. Turn back to chapter 7. Going to have you read a number of verses here. Look at the sixth verse of Ezra seven. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the law that the Lord the God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 9 for on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was. Was on him. Look at verse 28, same chapter. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. Go into chapter 8, verse 18. And by the good hand of our God on us. And look at verse 31, same chapter, he emphasizes the same thing. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. We find that expression one more time, and it's stated in such an explicit fashion that I want, I want to draw our attention to it, the 22nd verse of chapter 8. I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Friend, that is the message of the unit. Let me repeat it. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. It raises two obvious questions. Uh, what, is it, what does it mean to seek him? Right? That's what I want to know. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. We have those six references. The hand of God was on Ezra. Well, what, what does it mean to seek him? We've already answered the question. To seek God is to be devoted to his word. To seek God is to be devoted to his house. Please, friends, understand this. You cannot separate them. I cannot, I cannot stand before you this day and claim to love God and yet have this book lie closed in my house day after day, week after week. I can't do it. I cannot stand before you and say, I love God. And yet, view the church of God as a non-essential kind of option. If it works for me today, it works for me. If it doesn't, well, it doesn't. You can't do that. To love God is to love His Word. To love God is to love His house. To seek God is to seek that which is at the apple of God, the apple of God's eye, which is at the center of God's purposes. His word and his house. And the second question is this. Okay, I understand who who those are who, who seek him. Well, this promise here, what does that mean? The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. Big mistake. If we define good according to what I want instead of what I need, Huge mistake if I define good according to what makes me happy instead of what makes me holy. Big mistake if I define good according to what's visible and tangible instead of what's invisible and spiritual. Big mistake if I define good according to what's temporary and passing as opposed to what is eternal and everlasting. Big mistake. If I define good according to the interest of my flesh instead of the welfare of my soul that is the good in Romans 8 Paul tells us he declares it wonderfully that those whom God foreknew that is those upon whom God set his love his affection before the foundation of the world those whom he foreknew he predestined he predestined them to be conformed to the likeness Of his beloved Son. And those whom he predestined, he called. By a sovereign work of the Spirit of God, through the preaching of the Word of God, He opens the eyes, He opens the ears, He opens the hearts to see and to believe and to receive. And those whom He called, He justified, clothing them in the perfect obedience and righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ whereby they now stand accepted in his presence. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Past tense. Why? Because it is a done deal. You see, God has an eternal plan. The purpose of that eternal plan is the revelation of his own glory, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. His glory is tied to the salvation of his people, those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined, those whom he has called, those whom he has justified, and those who in his mind's eye are already glorified. The salvation of these people will serve for all eternity for the glory of the triune God. Therefore, we have this absolute certainty as Christians That God's sovereign plan and purpose, that is his, his eternal plan of redemption, extends to all ages, and it includes all things. That, my friend, is the good. The good. That as a believer, I have this absolute certainty that whatever befalls me in this life, however confusing appearances might be, That it serves for this ultimate final end, the glory of God in my salvation. That's why the reformer John Calvin could write Our comfort, our comfort as believers, as Christians, is to know that our Heavenly Father so holds all things in His power, so rules all things by His authority so governs all things by his wisdom that nothing can happen to us except he determines it. God's hand is for good on those who seek him. In other words, God's power is engaged for his people and against his enemies. That is the message of Ezra chapters 7 and 8. That is the essential, central message that the Spirit of God is seeking to convey. It requires of us, demands of us, an honest question, doesn't it? Am I one of God's people? Am I numbered among his people? Am I one who seeks him? Am I one who is consumed with his glory? Am I one who is devoted to his word? Am I one who is devoted to his house? Am I one who has been born again and transformed by the spirit of God? Am I one who in faith and repentance has bowed the knee to the king? That is the message, and that is the response. Let's bow our heads now in prayer. Our Father in glory above, enthroned in majesty, We praise you because you are a great king, the king of kings and lord of lords. We praise you because you are the creator and sustainer and upholder of all things. We praise you because you are the God of providence, the one who declares the end from the beginning, announcing that your will is done. And you're the one who has a great and eternal plan of redemption, focusing on your people, their salvation, and their ultimate transformation into the image and very likeness of your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, these are great and weighty truths. Grant us understanding. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to receive. And We pray that by your Spirit you would impress them deep within. Accept our praise now. Accept our thanksgiving as we offer it in that name which is above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.